All right, would you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter what? One. As we learned in the last lesson, we will be rejecting the gap theory in our study of the creation week of Genesis chapter one, and we will stand by instead the unshaped or the undeveloped earth position. And this teaching, which is completely consistent with the scripture, states that the earth was created in successive stages. And these stages are just exactly as chapter 1 of of Genesis records them, each one immediately following the previous. In verse 1, the first stage of creation is given. Remember we said that's not a summary statement that God created everything that is, you know, all at once. It is just the first stage of creation. God created the heavens, meaning the space of the universe. At the same time, he also created time in the beginning. Before that, there was no time. And at the same time, he created the the earth, which is the component of matter. Now, verse 2, then, rather than describing the earth following a tremendous cataclysm, which was caused by Satan's fall which consequently ended the millions and millions and billions of years of the geological ages, which is what the gap theory teaches. And if you were not here for that lesson, I strongly recommend you get the cassette tape and the notes as well and study about the gap theory because it is prevalent. A lot of people learned it. Uh, I think it's fading away now, but a lot of people have been taught it somewhere along the line. But rather than doing, rather than describing an earth like that, verse 2 simply describes what the earth initially looked like in the first stage of creation. It was what? Without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, or the waters. The earth was simply unshaped, and it was empty. It had no inhabitants. And the darkness which covered it was absolute, total, pitch black darkness without even the faintest glimmer of light. First stage of creation. Furthermore, the, the earth was covered with the water, which is what we looked at the word deep, remember, and the word deep speaks of water. The basic physical elements were apparently sustained in a formless, watery matrix throughout the darkness of space. It took the vibrant moving, and remember we looked at the word move in verse 2 when the Holy Spirit moved across the face of the deep? That word actually means vibrating. It took the vibrating movement of the Holy Spirit hovering over the initial earth, just as a mother chicken hovers over her little biddies, to bring the earth form. And that form, as the scripture itself states long before man ever discovered it, was in the shape of what? A sphere. Isaiah 40:22, Job 22:14, Proverbs 8:27 all tells us that the earth was round, that the earth is round. God had a great eternal purpose for earth. It was to become the home for his greatest creation, man. God, in his goodness and grace, had determined that he wanted to shower his goodness and grace upon a creature who would freely choose to love him and to obey him and to fellowship with him. He wanted a creature who could experience all of his attributes and all of the wonders of his person, including his unconditional love and his grace and his mercy, which are things that the holy angels cannot 
appreciate and worship God for other than seeing those attributes manifested through his creation of mankind. So although we know from Scripture that God did create the universe for his own glory, he also created the universe for man's benefit. God wants man to experience the splendors and the many varied facets of his eternal glory, which is seen in his creation. Now, being a God of order, God knew, of course, that before he could create man, he had to create a place for man to live. Makes sense, right? Just like right now, before we can go and join him in heaven, what is he doing? He is preparing a dwelling place for us so that when we get there, we will have a place to live. It reminded me of my husband because he absolutely refused to marry me until he had a place to put me. You know, he had to build a, well, he didn't build it, but he had to have a dwelling place for me. It always reminds me of Peter, Peter, pumpkin eater, had a wife and couldn't keep her. So he built, well, you know. I said, I don't care if we live in a shack or an apartment or what. No, he had to have a dwelling place. He had to have a home before he would marry me. And that's how God is. He had, we had to have a dwelling place before he would create us. And, of course, he had to not only have a place for man to live, but he would make provision for man. He had to create the heavens and the earth and all that is in them in order to... Um, all that is needed in order to sustain man's life. So the stages of creation, which we find presented in Genesis chapter 1, follow a natural sequence. Each creative act was necessary before the next creative act could take place. The Lord God followed a very orderly procedure in his creation. And as we study it, you'll see how logical and how orderly it is. I mean, our God is a God of order, right? He is not the author of confusion. Why would he make the earth through billions of years of mutations and natural selection and survival of the fittest and uh, diseases and struggle and death? That's not our God. Our God is a God of order, not chaos, not confusion. Everything he created in the six days of the creation week was essential to man's life. In other words, man could not have survived. Man was created on day six. Man could not have survived if any of the creative acts had been omitted, any one of these stages, these progressive stages, or if the order was rearranged or if some catastrophe destroyed what was created on any one of the preceding days of the creation week. All of creation is interconnected. All of creation is interrelated. Everything is needed to sustain life on earth, even those pesty little insects. Everything has a purpose. Everything is interrelated. You know, as we breathe out, what? Carbon dioxide, that's what the plants need to breathe in. They breathe out oxygen, that's what we need to live. Everything is like that. Everything works in a beautiful cycle. So everything is needed to sustain life on earth. And so God's creative acts on each of these six, six successive days followed an orderly pattern. Now what we find in the six days of creation are three basic created entities. 
There, is, there are the physical elements of the universe. The physical elements, speaking of matter, primarily. Matter, space, time, those are the basic elements. And from those, primarily matter, all inorganic, non-living, and all unconscious, organic systems are made. When I say organic, unconscious systems, what do you think of? Plants, vegetation, all right, down here, the lowest level of life other than inorganic material such as rocks. Then secondly, there is the animal world, which consists of the same physical elements as the inorganic systems. You know, everything came from the same initial matter. But the animal world also has the created capacity of consciousness, right? You could say that the vegetable life has a body. It has a form. The animal life has a spirit. I have this cute little uh, miniature greyhound named Woody. He is so cute. Don't tell your husband, Libby, but that's her husband's name. But he has the spirit. He has a spirit in him. He has the spirit of life in him. Well, what's the third created entity? The human realm. You see, the human realm also shares the physical matter of the universe. Was not Adam made from the dust of the earth? And the human realm also shares the consciousness of the animal world because the human realm has the spirit of life in it in them, but they also have, in addition, the uniquely cre created capacity for God-likeness. Ha humans have self-consciousness, and we have the capacity for God-consciousness. Actually, he has he's put eternity into all of our hearts, but we sort of, some people suppress that. So, but we have the potential for God-likeness, conscious, God God-consciousness. In other words, we are above the animals because God gave us a soul. So we have the body, the spirit, and we have all three. We have the soul. We are able to think. We are able to love. We're like, you know, created in God's image. We can make decisions. We can worship. We can think about, you know, where we came from. We can express ourselves. We have language. Now, it's interesting this was very interesting for me to notice, I hope it will be for you, that the only three times that the word bara, B-A-R-A, remember that word, that Hebrew word for created? The only three times that we find this word for cre created are in Genesis, I mean, that are used in Genesis chapter 1, is when God created each one of these three basic entities that we just discussed. In verse 1, the word bara is used when God made from nothing, which is called ex nihilo, when he made from nothing all of the physical elements of the universe. Everything is either time, space, or matter. So there we find the word bara. You know, only God, remember how we talked about only God can bara. Only God can create. Man can make things, but he cannot create things. Well, the next time we find the word bara, the second time, is when God created the animal world. In other words, when he gave, when he created conscious life. And this is found in verse 21, when he made the animal world of the sea and the land and the air creatures. They possess the capacity of consciousness. 
That's only the second time. The third time, when do you think you would find it? When God created man. In verse 27, when God created man in his own image. So the only things that were created were initially the matter, then the spirit of, you know, the animal world, and then when God gave man a soul. And I think that's very interesting. Again, all of these threes point out that our creator himself is triune. Now, between these three great acts of creation is the record of God's innumerable acts of formation. All right? He created those things from nothing. But then in between those three acts of creation, he's forming things. He's taking that initial matter, and he's forming things. And I am not going to spend the time because I do have a long lesson. But while I'm talking, you can look at these um, acts of formation that he did on the seven day or the six days of creation. Of course, on the seventh day, he rested totally from his completed works of not only creating but of forming. Each stage, if you look at this, each stage stage was an orderly, logical preparation for the succeeding stage. And all processes were for the ultimate purpose of providing a suitable home for man. Now, before we move on to discuss the continuing acts of God on the first day of creation, I just want to mention briefly that any attempt of man to compromise evolution with the biblical account of creation as it is given to us in Genesis chapter 1 is impossible, although there have been many such compromised theories. We looked at one last week which was called, what? The gap theory. And I hope you learned by the end of that study that it's impossible really for the gap theory to be Um, to be acceptable either to the geologist or to the um, theologist. It just doesn't work. There is also something called the day-age theory, which we will discuss, Lord willing, at the end of our lesson today. And then there are other theories, such as progressive creationism and theistic evolutionism. These are all theories which attempt to compromise evolution with biblical creationism. But any such theory, and there are others, which attempts to accommodate or compromise with the teaching of the scripture on creation and the teaching of evolutionism on creation is attempting to do the impossible for a number of reasons. However, since we are currently discussing the order of creation as given to us here in chapter 1, let's just consider how this one area, the order of creation, presents an impossible situation for any compromise between biblical creationism and evolutionism. You know, the, 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 the bottom line is you have to choose one or the other. A lot of Christians think that they can somehow mesh the two together and come up with, a, with an intermediate theory but they don't think things through. That's always the big problem. It's impossible. You cannot, you you have to choose. Choose this day whom you will serve. Creationism or evolutionism, you cannot have both. Now here's one reason. There are many, but here's one. Evolutionism says, for example, that flowering plants and pollinating insects 
evolve together, you know, through the millions and millions of years, they evolve together through mutual benefit. However, creationism, as given to us in chapter 1 of Genesis, says that plants were created on the third day and insects were created on the sixth day. Big difference here. Big difference. Also, what we're going to look at later is called the day-age theory, um, where people try to compromise and say, well, each of these seven days is not just a 24-hour day, it's a geological age, which maybe took millions of years. Each day one took millions of years, day two took millions of years. All right, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that would be that the um, plants created on the third day would have to exist for three days, let's say three million years minimum, probably more like 300 million years before the insects came along. Is that possible? No. The flowering plants need the insects to pollinate and everything that goes on. But could the plants last for three days without the insects? Yes, they could last for three days. But they couldn't last for three million or three billion years. All right, so the day age, we'll get more into that. All right, evolutionism says that the stars existed before the Earth. Actually, they say that our planet spun off from the Earth. Uh, from the sun. Stars existed before the earth, which is ridiculous. I'll get into that when we get into our study against evolutionism, because if we spun off from the sun, we would have burned up long ago. We'd be made of the same material as the sun, but where earth is composed totally of a different material than the sun. All right. But evolution does say stars existed before the earth. Creationism, on the other hand, says that the earth was created on day one. The stars, including our own sun, were not created until when? Day four. Why do you think God did that? I was thinking about that. Why did God have earth created first and then the sun and the stars? You know why? Because man, down through the ages, has had such a big problem with worshiping the sun, the sun god. God wanted to show, no, it's not the sun. I didn't even bring that around until day four. All right, evolutionism says that man has been carnivorous. In other words, that man has been a meat eater ever since the beginning. Creation says that man was only a vegetarian. He was only to eat the herbs of the field and the fruit of the trees. It wasn't until after the flood that God sanctioned meat eating for mankind. Evolutionism says that birds evolved from reptiles. Well, you can't compromise that with what creation says because creation says birds were created before the reptiles called creeping things. Evolutionism says that fish, you know, you've heard the story, that fish came, were in existence long before birds. You know, that one day one fish decided he would sprout a wing and a feather and then on and on it went. I mean, it's just totally illogical. We will get into that. If you'll be patient, we'll get into all this. But creationism says that birds were, um, fish and birds were created on the same day, day five. Is God God? Can he create them on the same day? Does he need millions of years to turn a fish slowly into a bird? Of course not. Evolutionism says that insects evolved long before the first birds. Creationism says that birds were created before the insects. 
Evolutionism says that many of Earth's original animals, including the dinosaurs, that they lived and they died and they became extinct long before man ever existed. Creationism says that the entire original animal world, including, yes, dinosaurs, was created only hours before man. Men and dinosaurs did live at the same time. Evolutionism says that the first living things came out of the sea, right? A little amoeba, you know, and then he grew in the sea, and etc. Creationism says that land plants, day three, were the first living organisms. Evolutionism says that plant life on Earth is what produced our oxygen-rich atmosphere. It's the plants that gave us an atmosphere. What does creation say? We'll look at this, Lord willing, next week. Creation says that Earth's life-supporting atmosphere was created before any plants. The atmosphere was created on day two. Day three came the plants. Evolutionism says that the first fish evolved long, long ago before the first fruit trees. However, creationism says that the fruit trees day three came before the fish day five. So you see how impossible it is to try to compromise evolutionism with what the Bible says? And yet there are all kinds of theories out there that try to mesh the two. It's impossible. Now, we're going to discuss a little more of this later on, but for now, now, uh, let's get back into our look at the events of the first day of the creation week. The earth, after having the, um, the vibrating movement of the Holy Spirit described in verse 2, the earth was formed. It received its spherical shape, but it was still in utter darkness. It needed the energy of light to dispel that darkness, and that's what we're going to talk about in uh, the remainder of this lesson as we look at verses 3, 4, and 5, which I've entitled respectively, God's, God spoke light's existence, verse 3, God saw light's goodness, First part of verse 4, God divided light from darkness, latter part of verse 4, and then God named light and darkness in verse 5. So we'll begin by looking at God spoke light's existence. In verse 3, we have the very first occasion in the Bible of God speaking. It says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now what is it? What is it that brings light then? What brings light? You answer me. God's word. The word of God brings light. Is that true? Yes, it's true in more than one way, isn't it? So that which we have presented to us this far in the first three verses of the Bible is that God the Father is the source of all things, right? Verse 1, in the beginning, God created time, space, and matter, right? We've talked about that, the heaven and the earth. God, the Holy Spirit, is the energizer of all things, verse 2. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And we also have that the Word of God is the illuminator or the revealer of all things. And that's what we find in verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. As we've already pointed out in a previous lesson, 
Jesus Christ is called the Word. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And who was the Word? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 14. Jesus Christ is the Word. He is the living Word of God. He is the revealer or the illuminator of all things. He reveals not only God to us, When we look at Christ, who do we see? Who do we get to know? He reveals God the Father to us. But he's also the revealer of God's truth. He is, as he himself said, the light of the world, John 8, 12. Now, God's written word is what you have in front of you, the Bible. And it is also associated with light, is it not? Psalm 119, 105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm 119, 130, the entrance of thy words giveth light. Oh no, I'll leave that up a minute. So first, there was the creative act of the Father, the creative activity of the Father, which was followed by the energizing activity of the Holy Spirit, which was followed by the enlightening activity of the Word of God, Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? Right there, first three verses, we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Ten times now in this chapter, and this is interesting too, there's so much, that's why it's going to take us forever to get through all this, but ten times in chapter one, we find the words, and God said. Ten times. You can go down through there and circle them if you want to. There. So actually, these are God's first set of the Ten Commandments. This is his Ten Commandments to creation. And you know what? Not one of them has ever been broken. The natural elements obey God perfectly, flawlessly. Because why? Well, he didn't give them free choice. You know, when Jesus Christ was here and he commanded nature to do his will, it always obeyed, right? The fish jumped into the net. The sea was calm, etc. Nature always obeys because nature did not receive choice. It has no choice. It has to obey God. So the Ten Commandments of creation, not one has ever been broken. And they stand in stark contrast to the Ten Commandments that we read about in Exodus 20, which were given to man, not one of which has ever been kept. (laughs) because he gave us free choice. And so we have chosen, man in general has chosen to break all of them. God is so absolutely, positively powerful that he can create by his very word. He simply spoke and everything came into existence. God's word is what he used to create. It was the process, the means, the way by which he created. He carried out his will simply, merely by speaking. And when he spoke, it was done. And it was done when? In millions of years later? No. When he spoke, it was done immediately. We saw this in Christ's life. Read the Gospels. When he spoke, immediate. Things happened immediately. And there was no variation, neither shadow of turning from what he had willed and what he had spoken. He said, light be, and light was. 
His words are not only legislative, they are executive. When he speaks, it's done. Psalm 33 says this of God. It says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. For he spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Matthew Henry in his commentary wrote that for God it was dictum factum. A word and a world. Is that power or what? That's power. Now, that the Lord Jesus Christ was indeed God manifest in flesh is demonstrated how? By his words, which had the exact same effect and quality as God's words. All the Lord Jesus Christ had to do or say to the raging winds and the tempest-tossed waves during a violent storm on the Sea of Galilee was what? Peace be still. And what? Instant calm. Who does that prove he is? God. I was looking, as I was looking for these transparencies, I have a file, I have all my transparencies in little files, and so I was going through what I call the miracles of Christ. And as I was looking at the pictures, there was Jesus healing a blind man, giving him sight. There was Jesus, you know, healing a withered arm and uh, the, the lepers and all the different miracles that he has done, the fish and the nets and everything. And it just, it just overwhelmed me. I thought, well, of course, a piece of cake. Who is he? He's God. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. If he created the whole universe, what is it for him to make a little storm settle down? You know, or a blind man to get his eyes. What is it for him to say to a, a dead body having decay, being de- decomposed for four days, Lazarus come forth and then instantly robbed the grave of its prey. He that was dead came forth, right? What is it if he's the creator that he can take all those bodies out there in the cemetery, you know, at the time of the rapture and just say, come hither and instantly. I mean, he's the creator God. That's not a big deal for him. I think we get things out of perspective so often, don't we? We forget who he is. He is God. He can do anything he wants. So dictum factum. I like that. Dictate fact. Wouldn't you like power like, no, no. That would be dangerous. (laughs) Now, God did not have to speak to create. He didn't have to speak, but he did. He could have just thought the universe into being and light into being, as we see here in verse 3. And he could have just thought the firmament, which we'll look at next week, into being and all else that he has created. But he chose instead to speak. Now, the point he was making for our benefit, was that he holds his word in the absolute highest regard and esteem. He places his word even higher than his what? His name. Places his word even above his own name. And we see that uh, throughout the scripture, just by the fact that he says his God, his word shall endure forever. The grass will wither, the flowers will fade, but his word will endure forever. We know that he places his word in high esteem because it's his word that he uses to make men 
into new creatures. And it's his word that he uses to cause men to grow and to mature spiritually. So it was God's spoken word which created light. He said, light be and light was. In Hebrew, now this is really interesting. I have fun with this. But in Hebrew, the words, let there be, you notice those three words in our English? You know what they are in Hebrew? <laughs> you ready for this? Hiya! <laughs> I am not kidding. <laughs> How would you pronounce H A Y A H? Hiya! Can't you just see God doing that? <laughs> I bet that's where that word came from. Isn't that what they use in karate? <laughs> It's a very, in the Hebrew, it's a very strong and active imperative, you know, command. Light, uh, God was commanding light to become. In other words, he was commanding light to exist. You see, light was not always in the universe, in the physical universe. There was a beginning to light in the physical universe. When did light come into the physical universe? Right here, day three, in the beginning. Now, no one, no one at all, not even Albert Einstein, not even Terry Doby, what? Oh, v verse 3, yeah, not day 3, verse 3, thank you. But no one, not even the most brilliant person on the earth, <laughs> can tell us what light is. Can, can you tell us what light is? I got out my World Book Encyclopedia, and uh, it taxed my mind, and I, I can't tell you what light is either. It's made up of not only particles, but it's also waves, and it's very, very complex, and the most brilliant person can't explain to us what light is at all. It's one of the great, one of the very greatest mysteries in the cosmos. Men can really only state what light does not what light is. Light has become the new absolute in physics because it is so constant, the speed of light. Light is at the very uh, center of the famous Einstein equation, E equals mc2, energy equals mass multiplied by the speed of light squared. The little c stands for the speed of light. It was that equation, of course, you know, that brought the world into the atomic age. There are mysteries about this, well, there's mysteries about light, period, but there are mysteries also about this light which God created here on the first day of creation. And one mystery involves the fact that this light did not come from the sun or any of the other stars or the reflected light of the moon because those heavenly bodies were not created until day four. Look at verse 16. So this light did not come from the sun or the stars. That's one mystery. Mystery two, we do not know if God created this cosmic light throughout the whole universe, which was at this point in time, like the earth, still in incompleteness, a stage of incompleteness. Why was the universe incomplete? Because it didn't have all the heavenly bodies in it. Or if this light only illuminated the earth. When he said light be, did it shine throughout the whole universe? Or did the light only shine on the earth? Well, we don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. Could it be that this light, that God manifested himself to the earth, could this be what this light is? Um, because we know that the scripture definitely does teach that God is light. 
In him there is no darkness. Light is what is within God himself. It's within his person and his nature and his being. He dwells in the glory and in the splendor of light. And wherever he is, the glory of his light shines forth from his being. In fact, when God's glory is present, there is no need of the sun or the moon. What did we learn last year when we studied Revelation, the last two chapters? We learned that when glorified believers will dwell with God and the Lord Jesus Christ in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens, in the new earth, there will be no need of the sun or the stars because it told us that the glory of God and the Lamb will lighten the eternal state. They will be the light. There will be no night in the eternal state. So, question, was this first day light, the light which emanates from God's person and God's presence, or was it perhaps the light of the word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ? Was this Christ's first pre-incarnate manifestation to the physical universe? What's the answer? Well, we just don't know. (laughs) What we do know is that prior to the creation of the sun and the stars, light was brought into existence in the physical universe, and this light was set in contrast to the previous darkness. Now, it may be, it may be that the light source for the first three days of creation, you know, before God put the sun and the stars into the universe, Maybe that the light source was the stream of light waves formed instantly by God as if they were already in transit from the light source which would be formed to generate them beginning on the fourth day when God did create the sun and the stars. Do you understand what I'm saying? No, I thought you were one of those brilliant people. (laughs) In other words, here, I'll put it in simple terms. It could be that God just made the light waves that would come from the sun and the stars. I mean, he could put the light waves there without the generator, right? So that's what they're saying. He could just put the light waves first and then on day four put the generator in place. And I think that might be what he did to, again, show man that, no, I don't need the sun. The sun is not God. I'm God. And I can do whatever I want. You got that. All right. The presence of visible light waves involves the entire electromagnetic spectrum. In other words, the ultraviolet light and the other short wavelength radiations, infrared light, and all the other long wave phenomena of light. When the electromagnetic forces were set into operation, the divine work of energizing the physical universe was complete. There are only three, and again, this is so fascinating. The more I study, I'm, I'm becoming a scientist. I want you to know I'm not only going to be a Bible teacher, I'm going to be a scientist before this is all finished, a creation scientist. There are only three basic types of energies or forces in the universe. And again, what does this point to? A triune God. There are the, um, the, there are the nuclear forces, there are the gravitational forces, and there are the electromagnetic forces and energies. The incredible creative act of energizing 
This universe was performed by all three members of the triune Godhead. And we could summarize their work very interestingly like this. God the Father activated the nuclear forces which maintain the integrity of matter, all right, when he created the elements of the time-space-matter continuum in uh, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, time-space-matter. So he activated the nuclear forces. Then God, the Holy Spirit, activated the gravitational forces when he moved across the face of the waters, bringing form and motion to the originally still and formless matter. And then the word of God, Jesus Christ, activated the electromagnetic forces when he called light into existence out of darkness. And now, of course, we know that all three members of the Godhead were actually involved and participated in all aspects of creation. But it could be that maybe each one of these members headed up each of these three um, energizing phases of the first creation day. But isn't that fascinating? It, it just, there is just no end to the depth of Scripture. Okay, let's look at two, part two of our outline. God saw light's goodness. For this, let's look at the first part of verse four where it says, and God saw the light that it was, what? Good. God looked upon the light which he had called into existence within the physical universe, and he saw that it was good. It fulfilled its function. Because the word good refers to the purpose, the value, or the function of something. So in other words, God saw that the light was valuable. It fulfilled its purpose and its function. Now what is one of the purposes or functions of light? to dispel darkness. Very good. We have another brilliant one up here. Unless, it's rubbing off, unless there is light, the earth would have remained in total darkness. Or at least until day four. Now, what other function or purpose is there for light? Well, we know um, that we must have light in order to have life. Without light, there would be no life. Green plants and algae convert light into energy, and then they can grow. This is the process known as photosynthesis. Without light, plants would not be able to live on the earth, and then man and, men and animals would not be able to live, would they? Because we need plants to not only feed us, but we need plants because they're they put the oxygen into the air that we need in order to breathe. Furthermore, light gives heat and warmth, without which nothing at all could have lived on earth. Light also gives color and beauty. Do you know there would be no color in this room? I couldn't see all the different colors that you have on if we were sitting here in darkness. So it gives color and beauty to things because light enables men and animals to see. Light exposes the universe and the earth so that men and animals can carry on their function and their purpose in the world. So God's light was exactly as he had planned for it to be. It was what? It was good. You notice everything he'll say in the first six days is good. 
Everything is good. He doesn't say very good until it's completed. At the end, it is all completed and it is very good. Okay, let's look now at God divided the light from the darkness, verse, uh, the latter part of verse 4, where it says, uh, and God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. When light appeared in the physical universe, God divided it from the former darkness. Darkness was not eliminated completely as far as the earth was concerned, but darkness was separated from the light. Now, because we learn in the next verse that God named the light day and he named the darkness night and that these two divisions constituted the first day of God's creative work, we know, therefore, that the earth at this point in time had motion. It was, what, turning on its axis. The dark light cycle means that the earth was now rotating on its axis. There was a source of light coming from one side of the earth similar to the sun, even though the sun was not yet in position. And this is why I tend to think that he made the light rays without the generator of the light rays rather than manifesting himself because if he manifested himself to the, to the world, I think the whole world would have been lit up. All right? So this motion was probably a result of the, er, the spirits moving across the face of the deep in verse 2. When the spirit moved over the face of the earth in verse 2, he brought not only form, but he also brought Motion. The earth started rotating, and that's why we have the day-night cycle here on the first day. From the very first day of creation, then, we find that God began the principle of separation. He separated the light, the darkness from the light, the light from the darkness. Now, light in the scripture, we've already said this, is associated with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. He said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And he said elsewhere, I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in what? In darkness. The separation of light from darkness here in the creation story is a picture of of the expulsion of spiritual darkness. Just as God divided the light from the darkness in the physical cosmos, he can and he will do the same for men spiritually. God wants to give men light in the midst of the darkness of this world. He wants to give them who? the light of this world. He wants to give them the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants them to become then children of the light through their belief in the light, Christ. And how does he do this? He does this through his word, which is the light of truth and a light unto our paths. He wants us to then, after we've become children of the light, he wants us to walk in the light's path and to then set our own lights on a, on a candlestick so that others might see our lights and be drawn to the light, Jesus Christ. Only God can give men light in the midst of darkness. 
He, he only God can uh, give the light of order in the midst of dark confusion and chaos. And this world is very confused and very chaotic. Only God can give order. Only God can give the light of purpose in the midst of dark emptiness. Only God can give the light of fellowship in the midst of dark loneliness. Only God can give the light of the knowledge of truth in the midst of dark and blind ignorance. It says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, when did he do that? Day one. Hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So he did this as a spiritual picture as well. Now we will notice God's principle of separation is presented throughout the creation account. He not only separated the light from the darkness here on day one, but on day two, he divided the waters from under the firmament from the waters above the firmament. And then on day three, he divides the waters on the earth from the land. Always separation, separation, separation. And then when he creates every living thing and creature, what does he always say? That he made them after his kind to make sure that there's always separation. He knew God knows the end from the beginning. He knew evolution would come along. And he wanted to make sure we knew that everything only can reproduce after his kind, that there is no transition between the species. He made sure that we would know this. Later on in such books as Exodus and Deuteronomy, God, through Moses, commanded Israel to remain separated from the nations around her and from their ways and from their gods and from their women, etc. And whenever they violated that principle of separation, what happened? They always suffered. They always had to suffer the consequences. So the principle is simple, very simple. It's not difficult. God's people are to be very careful in their walk. We are to live in the world, you know the saying, but we are not to be like the world. We're not to be of the world. We're to be salt and light in this world. We are to be separated from the world. Now, that doesn't mean we go and hide ourselves in the mountains somewhere. We are to be light to the world. We are to give them the truth, but we are not to be like the world. Principle of separation, which the church is losing. We're trying to be like the world to draw the world in. That doesn't work. That's not God's way of doing it. We're to be different. Then the world will be attracted to our light. And then they will come in. They have enough of the world out there. They're looking for something different. All right, I could get on that one, but I better not. Okay, Genesis 1-5, God names light and darkness. Let's read verse 5. It says, And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. Now, in case you ever wondered who named light day, I mean, I know you haven't, had a lot of rest at night wondering about this. Who named light day and who named darkness night? Well, I have the answer for you, and I just read it to you. God named them, not man. God named them. And this is important, little thing, but it's important because it shows us that God is the Lord of both day and 
night. As the creator, of course, he has the right to name day and night, light and darkness, anything that he chooses. As God is the creator of day and night, man is therefore not to abuse the day or the night by doing such things as lazily sleeping away half of the day or carousing in wild living half of the night. (laughs) Furthermore, since God is the Lord of both day and night, we who are his children need not fear the day or the night. You don't have to fear when you put your pillow down at night any more than you do walking around in the daytime fearing somebody might mug you. Who is the Lord of the day and night? Who is sovereign? Who's in control? Who's the one who never slumbers or sleeps? God. So for the sake of his yet uncreated living earth creatures, especially man, God gave the light of day for work and he gave um, the darkness of night for rest and for the renewing of strength. And then, as though he were again anticipating a future problem, of course he was because he knew it would happen, God very carefully defined his term for day and night even further. Having completed his first day's creative work, the scripture says what? And the evening and the morning were the first day. Identifying the first day with the morning and the evening makes it very clear that God was referring to a literal 24-hour day. In fact, the termination of each day's work of the creation week is noted by this very same formula. It gets kind of monotonous. He repeats it over and over. And the evening and the morning were the second day. And the evening and the morning were the third day. On and on throughout the whole week. Each day had its distinct boundaries. And it was set in a series of day, first day, second day, third day. And both of those criteria are never, ever used in the Old Testament unless literal days are intended. Now, the reason that I am stressing this literal 24-hour day situation for the creation week is because of a theory which began to be popularized, when would you think? early 1800s, same time as Darwin. And the proponents of this new idea, just like those of the gap theory, believed, these were Christian men, all right, they believed that the geological ages were so definitely being established by the scientific world that they dare not question them, or they'd be categorized as ignorant. You know, that's where they put us as ignorance. So because these men were Bible believers, they attempted to make some way to accommodate the Genesis account of creation with the geological ages of millions and millions of years. Now the simplest way to do this, they figured, was to interpret the Genesis record of creation in such a manner that the long ages of geology would mesh with the seven-day story of creation given in the Bible. So they merely expanded each of the seven days of the creation week into geological ages. So instead of just being an evening and a morning, a literal 24-hour day, day one, all that we've talked about that God did on day one, 
took a, an entire geological age, an indefinite period of time, millions and millions of years to accomplish. However, there are many reasons to reject this theory, which is known as the day-age theory. What these Christians did not think uh, through, and that's always the problem, they just didn't think everything through, they didn't know what we know today, thank the Lord, due to scientific creationism. What they did not realize is the same problem that the Christians who brought, uh, bought into the gap theory did not realize, and that is that the geological ages, you know when I'm talking about geological ages, they say it took millions of years to build up the strata of the Earth's crust into those different, you know, the Precambrian, the Cambrian, the, uh, oh, I can't think of all the names of them, but the, the different, the different, um, layers of the earth strata that it took millions of years to build all that up those are called that's the geological ages what they didn't realize is that these ages are to all intents and purposes synonymous with evolutionism when a person accepts the geological ages even if he doesn't realize it he is in turn also accepting the evolutionary system the geological ages you see are what provide the necessary time factor for evolution. There's some of those names up there. If, as the Bible presents time, if the earth is only thousands of years old instead of millions and even billions of years old, then evolution is impossible because evolution requires billions of years to even be remotely acceptable. And we will talk, Lord willing, we're going to talk why, how, how there are many things in the world, on the moon, all around us, to show, to demonstrate that this earth is a young earth and not an old, old earth. But that'll be another lesson. On the other hand, the only real assurance that the geologist has of the geological ages is his assumption of evolutionism. The various geological ages are even interpreted and they are dated on the supposed stage of evolution of the corresponding animal fossils which are found in that layer of the earth's sediments. So evolution is the basis for interpreting the fossils and the fossil record is the basis for establishing and identifying the geological ages. And this, by the way, is the epitome of circular reasoning. All right? You've got an evolutionist in front of you. You want to ask him some questions? Question number one. How do you know how old each layer of the Earth's strata is? Will you tell me, Mr. Evolutionist? You know what his answer will be? He will say, oh, that's easy, by the fossils that we find in them. Okay, question number two. How do you know the age of the fossils, Mr. Evolutionist? Answer, by the layer of the Earth's strata that we find them in. That's exactly their reasoning, and it's totally circular reasoning. Bible-believing be, believing Christians need to understand and to realize that the geological ages go hand-in-hand hand with the entire evolutionary system. However, even if some of the Christians who proposed the such ideas as the gap theory and the day-age theory, if they still adamantly rejected 
and attempted to ignore the whole evolutionary implication of the geological ages, the fact of the matter is that they still must address the tremendous problem of why God would choose to use billions of years of natural selection, survival of the fittest, mutations, diseases, extinctions, struggles for survival, suffering and death as his prelude to the creation of man. God, as we said earlier, is not the author of confusion, is he? God, neither is God a liar. If you have a God who's a liar, you might as well pack up and go home. God very clearly declared at the end of his creation week that everything was, what, I told you a little while ago, very good, Genesis 1.31. He also stated in his word that there was no suffering and no death in the world before man brought sin into the world, and by sin then came death. Yet if the rocks of Earth's crust were already loaded with the fossilized remains of billions of animals and even hominid forms that resembled men, then God is not only a liar, because everything was not very good, and man didn't bring sin and death into the world, it was already there before man, so he's not only a liar, but he is also the only one who could then be held directly responsible for the suffering and the death prior to man's sin. Right? Think it through. That's right. And this then brings theological suicide to the Christian faith. Another problem with the day-age theory is that the Hebrew word for day, which is used in, chapter, in, in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis over and over again, the Hebrew word is yom, Y-O-M. You know, you've heard of yom kippur, the day of atonement. And all the uses of this word found elsewhere in the Bible refer to a literal 24-hour day when they are prefixed by a numerical adjective, which is just what we find in the creation week when we hear about first day, second day, third day. Furthermore, the repeated reference to evening and morning after each of the creation days makes it even more clear that God was trying to tell us that those days are to be understood as literal days and not as ages. Now, think about this. If each of the six days of the creation week were, suppo- were ages of supposedly millions or perhaps even billions of years, then God, on the seventh day, would have rested for, let's say, the minimum of a million years, right? After having completed his creation and his creation of man. Therefore, what would that mean? If God rested after the creation of man for a million years, that would mean that during the entire historical record of the Bible, he's still resting. When the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth, guess what? God was still resting. During this church age, I've got bad news for you guys. God is still resting, and he's going to be resting for many thousands and thousands of years before he will even reach a single million years of rest. We could call God Rip Van Winkle. (laughs) And that, of course, is ridiculous. 
After the creation of man, we know that there has only been six to 10,000 years of Earth's history, human history. That would mean that God still has at least 990,000 to 996 years more of rest left. Now, that is ridiculous. God purposely created the world in literal 24-hour days. Why? Well, as you see up here, I mean, he could have done it in six seconds, right? He could have taken six billion years. But he did it in six 24-hour days in order to serve as an example for man to follow. Exodus 20, God says, Six days shall ye labor and do all your work, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And then we were to rest when? On the seventh day. If the word yamim, which is the plural, remember that I am ending in Hebrew is plural. If the word yamin, which means days, plural, could be translated as indefinite eons of time or ages, then it would be correct, you see, to translate Exodus 20 as God saying to man, six indefinite eons of time shall ye labor, and then the good news on the seventh indefinite time can rest. So that would be the good news. We could all rest for a million years. We wouldn't get much done, would we? Now, by the way, the plural for days, which is yamim, is used some 700 times in the Old Testament, and it has never proved to mean anything other than literal 24-hour days. When the Bible intends to convey the concept of a very long duration of time, it uses another Hebrew word like olam, O-L-A-M, meaning age, or it attaches to the word yam an adjective, Rab, R-A-B, which means very long. So that both words together, Rab, Yam, mean a very long period of time. Yam, just by itself in the Bible, can never, ever be proved to require the meaning of long time, much less geological ages of millions of years duration. Well, then the final problem with the day-age theory is... Uh, or at least the final problem I'm going to mention to you. There's other problems, but we don't have that much time. But the final one is what we talked about earlier in this lesson regarding the serious contradictions between the order of the creation week as given to us in Genesis chapter 1 and the order of events which are suggested by the evolutionists. And we've already discussed some of these, such as the stars existing before the earth whereas Genesis says that the earth existed before the stars. And evolution teaches that birds existed before reptiles, whereas a creation account says that God created the reptiles before the birds. The uniformitarianists who teach the geological ages tell us that matter existed in the beginning. The matter was out there, some little piece of matter, and that's what formed everything. What does the creation account tell us? It tells us that matter was created by God himself in the beginning. Only God is eternal, and he created matter. Uniformitarianism, which, of course, is necessary for the geological ages. You've got the geological ages are synonymous with uniformitarianism, which is synonymous with evolutionism. All right? It teaches that the sun was the Earth's first light. What did we learn today? That the sun didn't exist until day four, so there was something else which was Earth's first light. The Bible teaches that... Um, 
land vegetation was created before the sun, and evolutionism teaches that the sun existed before land vegetation. Evolutionism teaches that women, woman, came before man by genetics, that you had to have a woman first. What does the Bible teach us? The opposite, totally the opposite. You can't mesh the two. The Bible says that man was created first and woman from man. Uniformitarianism teaches that rain existed before man. What does the Bible teach us? Man existed long before rain. Rain didn't come until the time of the flood. Uniformitarianism teaches that the creative processes are still continuing. Amazing that nothing is being fossilized anymore, but they say it's still continuing. Have you seen any half birds, half fish out there involving? No, but that's what they say. The Bible teaches that creation is complete. Now, the most important difference, however, is that evolutionism, uniformitarianism, and the teaching of the geological ages state that, the, that struggle and death existed prior to man and to man's fall. The Bible, however, clearly states that man is the cause of struggle and death. Therefore, it is impossible to develop any theory which attempts to compromise the geological ages of evolutionism and the creation account which we find in Genesis. You see, a decision simply must be made for one or the other. You cannot have both. But sad to say, many, many, many people, most seminaries in our country, teach one of these compromise positions. And I am not exaggerating. They've done a survey and sent letters to all of the seminaries and Bible schools in America and asked them which ones, if they were willing to say that they taught literal six-day creation from Genesis. And they only got positive responses from three of those schools. So I'm not up here just talking and telling you about this for nothing. It's out there. Big, big movement, progressive creationism, theistic evolutionism, trying to compromise. But you cannot have both. You have to choose which one. And I hope that I will convince you before this study is over to choose creationism because evolutionism is the biggest hoax that this world has ever, ever experienced. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the fact that you are the creator God. And Father, as I was studying this lesson, I couldn't help but see the comparison between the creation account and then what you did in the creation of, not the creation of your son, but in bringing your son to this world, the incarnation of the light of the world. For we know that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then the spirit moved. He overshadowed Mary, and the word was placed into Mary's womb. The light, Jesus Christ, then came into the world. And God declared that the light was good when he said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we know that the light was separate 
from the darkness, because in him there was no sin. He was so separate from sinners. And his light shined in the darkness, but the darkness could not overpower the light. And God named the light. God named his son. He named his son. He said his name shall be called Jesus. A virgin shall conceive, and he shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. Wonderful counselor, prince of peace. What a beautiful, beautiful comparison there is here between the creation account and the, and the birth of your son, of yourself, because you, you and Jesus are one. Father, we thank you for the truths we've learned this morning, and I pray that we can share them with others because there are so many of our friends and people in our churches and everywhere around us, our children, our spouses, who have been uh, hoaxed, who have been beguiled by this evolution business. And I pray that we can really, really grasp this, what we're learning here, and, and understand it so that we can share it with others because it's the foundation of our faith and we really need to spend time understanding it. And I thank you for what you have shown me and what you have taught my heart. And I just thank you for leading us into this study of Genesis because I am just being so richly blessed and enlightened and I pray that we all are. Father, now I pray that we would go into the world as light and salt this week and that you would use us, that you'd give us divine opportunities, divine appointments with other people that we can witness to them the light of the truth and that they may come to the light and know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Thank you again for the patience of your people and help them, Lord, with their homework. Illuminate them and help them to to dig in and to get the answers for themselves because I know they will benefit from it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name for his sake and glory. Amen.